Welcome to the podcast of The Urban Mystic. This is season two where we meet with fellow deconstructors, fellow journeymen and journeywomen to hear the story of their first experience of God, calling to ministry, deconstruction and present journey. Our guest for this episode is, is Richard Jacobson, who is best known for his his book, Unchurching, and he's done a whole bunch of explainer videos and comics uh, and that around this. You know, I, I thoroughly enjoyed interacting with Richard, and, and he and I have uh, messaged once or twice, just backwards and forwards in between uh, around this, and he's just got a wonderful sense of humor, he's wonderfully warm. I, I thoroughly enjoyed chatting to him for these uh, for this conversation, which has become two episodes in, in in the podcast. He's just tremendously insightful and just just really down to earth at the same time. Yeah, I think you know one of the things that I really enjoyed about this episode was when he talks about kind of relinquishing institution, but not relinquishing community, and that he's actively trying to work very hard still at face to face community with people and. You know, there's this this moment where he's telling a story about, you know, doing doing the thing and then stopping doing the thing to do the other thing. And that'll make a lot more sense to the listener when, when he gets there and shares that specifically himself. But the whole idea of we stop actually just behaving like community because somebody's now going to take charge and we've got to start this silly process that is that is supposedly us then acting like community, and it isn't. And I really enjoyed that. I, I, I love that he's still digging into that. That's something that's very close to my heart as well, the whole idea of how do we do genuine and authentic community, you know, and, and not losing any of that in our conversations. And so it was really cool to hear, in some ways I think almost strikes me like he's still experimenting with some of it, and there's kind of a, this is really working, and I'm still looking further and further. Um, you know, at, at, at to what will make this this work long term. So I would, you know, it's one of the guests that I think to myself, I'd love to get back in six months to a year, and in another six months to a year, to just talk about that progression and see what's what's happening in his life and what he what he's experiencing. So I really I really enjoyed that, and hopefully, you as the listener will uh, will really dig into it. And he's got some great resources as well, you know, which uh, will either be in the show notes or you'll, you'll pick up during the episode, or you can just search him, just Google Richard Jacobson and Churching, and you'll find his website. And that was really cool as well. I think in particular, anyone that is that has got questions around how do we how do we do community without an institutional layer is really going to enjoy this conversation. Great. Well, uh, Richard, thank you very much for being willing to join us and do this. You know, it's... Uh, um, uh, I read your book uh, uh, quite a while back now, and um, and have listened to your podcast. And uh, Steve is is also a little bit familiar with your work, uh, not quite as familiar as as I am. So you know, it's a it's a great privilege to to have you on. So to start off with, I, I really just want to say thank you. Thank you, guys. I, I appreciate you having me. If we can kind of just uh, just kick in with a with a bit of a a tough behind the scenes question. I imagine there's there's an interesting story behind your sense of calling, your your sense of of experience of God that that led you to pick up this path that you're on. And uh, I was wondering if we could just start there, and if you could just uh, tell us tell us about that. The way that I ended up where I am now, in in retrospect, in hindsight, it makes perfect sense. But that's kind of the way life works, right? Uh, what was that? 
what was that Steve Jobs quote? You can only connect the dots looking in reverse. And um, so now it makes perfect sense. But, you know, at the time it was quite a journey because my childhood, uh, my, and I'm, we're talking like three, four, five years old, my relationship with God started at that age uh, when I was a hippie kid in the Jesus movement. And I don't know if you get familiar with that. Quite familiar with it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm an ex-vineyard man myself. So I've... I'm, I'm... Oh, there you go. Yeah. So, so uh, and, and for any of your listeners who might be wondering, well, what exactly is that here in uh, America, like in, I, I, you know, it really started in California. You can either say it was the Christian offshoot of the, the current day hippie culture or the hippie offshoot of that present day Christian culture. Either way, what you ended up with were a bunch of young people who had kind of a lot of the, the hippie um, paradigm where it was very um, anti-institutional and, you know, let's accept everybody, let's love everybody, but take the drugs out of the equation <laughs> and replace it with with, you know, the, the phrase you heard so much back then was get high on Jesus. And I know that's, that's very dated and very funny to hear now. Um, but that was really it. If you took, if you took, uh, instead of seeking worldly pleasure out of the equation and replaced it with people seeking authentic presence, meaning the presence of God, you ended up with a bunch of Jesus freaks. And that was my, um, community in those days as, as a child. And um, literally the way that I got saved wasn't an argument. It wasn't a sermon. It wasn't a message followed by an altar call. It was an encounter with God. Um, and so if when you, when you add those things together, that my whole understanding of, of God began with a relationship with him and my whole experience of quote unquote church were just a bunch of believers living this Christian life together. Um, you know, my concept of church was not something you go to. It's just who we were. And so it wasn't until my early teens that we, you know, my mom and I started going to an institutional church because we moved around a bit and, you know, we were looking for, you know, fellowship with Christians of, of some kind. And there was this really, you know, cool kind of non-denominational, uh, what we would have called spirit-filled church. And um, we started going there and it was great. The people were great, but it was only then that I was confronted with questions like, so where did you go to church before this? And that question didn't, I didn't have a framework for that. And so that's when I learned to start conceptualizing church as something you go to. You know, I won't walk you guys through the whole story because I've I've lived a few years, so we'll fast forward. But basically, I ended up in the institutional church later in life as kind of like the kind of like the poster child for church volunteerism. You know, you always love those church members that spend every waking moment at the church volunteering. I mean, you know, because they do as much or more than most staff members, and you don't. I have to pay them, you know, and, and I was one of those guys at the time. I definitely didn't look at it as 
you know, being in the salt mine, you know, like, like it's where I wanted to be. I, I was doing what I wanted to be doing and I was really loved it. And even in retrospect, uh, I know some people, when they get on the other side of their deconstruction, feel really bitter and ripped off and used. I don't. Um, everything that I did, I did voluntarily. I wasn't coerced. And I was having the time of my life. But I do look back and go, oh, my gosh, <laughs> did I do anything other than, you know, uh, some some sort of uh, activity that was connected to the institutional church? Because I sang on the worship team. I taught Sunday school. I volunteered um, in BBS. Um, I acted in all the skits on Sunday mornings. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on and on um, to the point where the staff went ahead and gave me a key to the church because I would swing by after work every night and walk the church and make sure all the doors were locked. So I, I was there literally every night. And, um, I was having a great time and I had great relationships with all of my pastors. I had known many of them um, for well over 15 years. And it was when I became a pastor, because I mean, it was kind of a foregone conclusion. This guy who lives at the church and volunteers at the church and works at the church and loves the church. Is definitely going to become a career man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you were a betting man, yeah, your money would have been on Richard. <laughs> so it's like, He's definitely, he's definitely going to do this full time. It was then when I, when I crossed that line of, from being, you know, just a, a volunteer, being a member to being a pastor, that something changed and not in a bad way, but I felt this responsibility that, Hey, I'm a pastor. Now people are going to listen to me differently. I need to really make sure, doubly sure that anything I share from the pulpit is from the word of God and not my own opinion, not my own interpretation, not tradition that I picked up along the way. So I started praying that God would help me separate all these man-made traditions I'd picked up from what he actually intended for the church, for pastors, for ministry, et cetera. And I just started rereading the Bible with fresh eyes and making a lot of notes those notes are what later became the book. The book didn't start off with me saying, I'm going to write a book. It was my own personal deconstruction where I was going, okay, let me separate out all the stuff that's debatable, all the stuff that's extra biblical, and just look at what the Bible says based on what the Bible says, not, you know, not, not imposing meaning onto it. Let's, let's really just kind of dig into what does it say? And I did not think that this was going to cause a lot of disruption. I, I mean, I, I felt good about the process and I felt like it was something I needed to do. But honestly, naively, I didn't think much would change. And everything changed. Not at first. At first, it was like, wow, I'm really struggling with some of these scriptures, the way they're written. Like when you take the, the tradition out of it and you take it at face value, some of these are problematic. So I actually started going to the other church leadership saying, hey, help me out here. Because I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm reading here um, in like take uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 26, you know, the verse that talks about whenever you come together, you know, each one of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. You know the verse I'm talking about, guys? I, I mean, you would have to. <laughs> To, to be having this conversation, right? And 
so yeah that's like yeah that's deconstruction 101 is first corinthians 14 26 but i'm reading it differently for the first time and i'm saying hey and i'm going to our senior pastor saying hey the way i read this everybody should come into the sanctuary with something to share so how do you reconcile that with the fact that we've got you know several hundred people just sitting and listening to you talk and you know and this is a, a spiritual mentor of mine and 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 a pure-hearted man, and I really do mean that. And so his his response wasn't manipulative, but it was coming from a particular perspective. And he said, "Oh, I totally see where that those verses could trip you up. Um, I think maybe you're reading something into it that's not intended. Let me tell you how I read it." I was like, "Sure, yeah." And 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 I love that he was open to having those conversations, and he was humble enough to say. Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's work this out. You know, it's like the like the Bible says, you know, let's reason together. He said, if you look further in that passage, you will find that there are these references that say, hey, do any of you speak in tongues? Well, only two or three should speak and one at a time. And if you're going to do that, there needs to be an interpretation. Otherwise, don't do that. Um, if there's prophets, only two or three prophets should speak. And so really, as you work your way down the passage, he's putting limits on on things so the idea that that paul is saying well every person should contribute that's not what he's saying what he's saying is all of those things need to happen you need to have a time of singing you know you need to have a time of hymns you need to have a time for a word of instruction um you need to have a prophetic word you need to have revelation and so what he really what he's pointing toward is what you know, we understand as the liturgy, because if you look at the liturgy, it's really based around this idea that you have a time of worship and you have a time of teaching, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, from, from an institutional programmed point of view, there's no cognitive dissonance there. It really does make sense. If you, if you, you know, take certain scriptures and, and see them through a particular lens. I guess, I guess, especially if you if you lift them out of the the historical context and you apply the one one to one today, you know, of course, the the idea of a mega church or even large churches that we have today would have been unheard of in that era, you know, in which in which Paul and others were writing about, you know, the the, the earliest expression of the of the of the church then, you know. So in that sense, you know, if if you've only got five people gathering and the idea is that two or three have a verse or a prophetic word, it's a very different very different notion to to I have a six thousand seated church with all the satellites that I've been my message to. And, my, and one of my favorite comments is, you know, when I when I challenge people on that, saying something very much like what you just said. One of my favorite answers I get back is, well, the only reason they didn't gather with 6,000 people is because they couldn't. And that right there, that, 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 one little, that one little statement really betrays so much of all the things that are connected to that statement. Um, like like there's, there is a stronghold, because, you know, a stronghold is, you know, precept upon precept. It's this constructed thing. And it doesn't come down just because you challenge, you know, this verse or that verse or whatever. And somebody answers you like that, 
you have to actually dig down before you even get to the underlying assumptions that inform that sort of answer, because it's like, wow. So what you're really saying is the thing that we're doing is objectively better than what they were doing, because this is this is where they would have ended up if they had been permitted to. I tend to speak of the doing church paradigm as almost like a constellation of little paradigm. So in the same way, a, a you know you you have a collection of stars and it forms a particular pattern and holds together. You know, paradigms work in much the same way. And this whole thing of doing church really is a whole bunch of discrete paradigms that are interconnected and they build a particular puzzle, they build a particular picture. And when you poke it in one area, it's resilient. So <laughs> so you poke it in one area and you find there's an echo from another end. And in some senses, one of one of the reasons why I feel people struggle to deconstruct it is that is that they're almost running over the spider web that this paradigm makes and they're trying to respond to every counter. And the difficulty is to take that step back and get the perspective that is needed to go, how did this thing come about? And then and then from there, the, the whole thing of going, well, in deconstructing it, deconstruction is a healthy thing, as opposed to in deconstructing, you becoming an, an enemy of God, or you, you're, you're really wanting to fight against the church and break it down, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I, th- I think a lot of people struggle to see, they struggle to see how people that are deconstructing and how people that are moving away from institutional church can do so by way of pursuing God and still loving people and still continuing in service and calling. Absolutely. Because if your idea of church is the institution and you see someone distancing themselves from the institution, you have no other framework to interpret that other than they're leaving the church. They're distancing themselves from the body of Christ. And it's pretty easy to come up with a list of reasons why that's, depending on, on doctrinally where you fall on the spectrum, it could be anything from, wow, that's an unwise decision to, oh, that's jeopardizing or, or invalidating your salvation, depending on how, you know, where you fall doctrinally in terms of, and, and how you conceptualize church. Very, very much so. There's, there's, there's almost uh, two things in there that you've that that you've that you've mentioned in that um, in that story summary that I'd, I'd I'd love to just pick up on quickly. The the first the first thing really is that is that nine times out of ten I will hear people res- respond and say there isn't a big falling away. It's only one or two disgruntled people that are really out there, and they tend to make a lot of noise. And of course, that's that's objectively not true. And the internet is filled with data from very reliable sources. So that's somebody being willfully ignorant if they're holding on to that statement. Very, very much so. And I find I find the majority of church leaders that I know and have interacted with, that's their go-to. And that's almost the excuse to go, we don't have to change anything that we that we do or anything like that. But but in terms of dipping back into the personal, you know, I, I like the fact that you say that you you're not an inverted, burnt out volunteer with uh, with with one of the other things that people say with unfulfilled aspirations, with who's burnt out from overexploitation. Yeah, or abuse, trauma. You leave because of some deep hurt. And are you finding that in terms of the balance of the people that you interact with, that, that, that most people actually fit more into that category than the embittered category? Well, that's what's interesting is because I didn't, 
I didn't, I didn't end up on this trajectory because of trauma or abuse or some dramatic thing. Um, matter of fact, I always find it funny when I hear people make those assumptions. Like, like I even heard a pastor like preach against my book. <laughs> that must have been fun. <laughs> oh yeah, and and the the amusing part to me were all the assumptions that he made that couldn't be more wrong. Like he couldn't come from a, a, a more less informed uh, opinion because it's, you know, because he was saying things, well, obviously this guy was hurt. And so he did blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, no, no. I didn't, I didn't start deconstructing because I got hurt by the church. I didn't start getting hurt by the church until long after I'd begun deconstructing. So it's, it's really everything, you know, I was in relationship with and on staff with people that I had known for years and years and years. Uh, you know, these these people were family to me. They were brothers and sisters to, to me. And we had a great relationship, great friendship. And it even started with me going to them saying, hey, can you help me? Can you fix me? Because in the beginning, it was just like, wow, this verse is problematic. This passage is problematic. Um I must be reading it wrong. So that was my operating assumption in the beginning was, man, I'm reading these things differently. I'm surely this isn't right. And so I kept going back to the leadership, but kind of like the, the conversation we were having about first Corinthians 14, I would get an answer. Like I would go and say, Hey, help me understand this. And I would get an answer and I would go, okay, well, that does make sense from a certain perspective. So I'm just going to go sit with that. But then I would keep reading the Bible and I would keep praying that stupid prayer that God would help me separate these man-made ideas from his ideas. And I would keep tripping over the next verse and the next passage and the next one. And I would have to go back and say, hey, remember the other day when I asked you about 1 Corinthians 14 and you said it's not about everybody participating, it's about all of these spiritual things being done. Yeah, sure. Okay, so why is the writer of Hebrews rebuking the entire congregation saying, by now you should all be teachers? Why is there an expectation, even if we're not talking capital T, you know, for teacher, I'm not saying they're all called to be, you know, spiritually, I mean, it's not a title, but for the moment, let's say title. The, you know, they're not, they're not supposed to carry the title teacher, but just operate in some degree of a teaching gift. Why is there that expectation if all they do is sit and listen? Like, where's the opportunity for them to exercise that gift so that they can grow into it? If anything, it sounds like he's scolding a church that looks like our churches today. One of the people that I've, I've really meant to, to, to look up and actually dig the quotes out from Sudan. So I, I know where it is as opposed to, I remember that somewhere in history, <laughs> when they were establishing the Orthodox Church, one of the one of the responses was, if we do church in this way, no one's going to believe that God is real because it's not a living, active community. This is not how to go about doing it. And I, I keep forgetting who that is, but it's a, it's, a, it's a quote from someone in history. Oh, meaning if we do it in the institutional, non-participatory way? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because there, there, there was there was a transition from uh, the various disparate communities that 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 met to 
to being this institutional church post 380 AD. And, and somewhere around about there, um, someone is, is, is noted to have made a comment. And I, I keep meaning to look them up again. And I just keep, I keep remembering it. And then I never get around to doing it. If you track that down, will you send that to me? Oh, absolutely. But, I, but what's interesting with, with, with your journey is that you started off um, very much being born in the context of a renewal, or at least born just before that, and then almost your early experience being in that context. So, so your introduction to institutional churches is, 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 quite, is quite late in, in, in your journey, and yet it so powerfully defined your understanding of doing church that when you came to deconstruct it, you know, it, it's it's that early experience was one that you almost had to recover and get back to, you know, because it is so changed and so transformed. And to me, that that speaks to how powerful this this doing church paradigm is, and how strongly it and how quickly it can reshape someone, who, even someone whose journey in is from a very different, vibrant experience. You know, you quickly get shaped into this box. Here's something that'll blow your mind. All of the people, all the pastors that I was on staff with were all part of the Jesus movement. So at one point, they were all hippie Jesus freaks. But here's the thing, because it took me a long time to figure out, like, why are they not struggling with the things I struggle with? Like, like our way of doing church. Why doesn't this, why, why does this, why do I have so many questions about it? And why does this church model that looks like it was borrowed from corporate America. Like, why doesn't this bother them the way that it bothers me? Because we use all this family language and the intentions are pure. Like, like I'm not saying that it's superficial. We really do mean it when we say brother and sister, et cetera, et cetera. But then you look at the way things are organized and structured and it looks like a corporation. And why am I having trouble reconciling those things? And they are just like, oh, no problem. Uh, you know, and, the, and they can just run with it. And then I realized, oh, wait a minute. They're all baby boomers. I'm a Gen Xer. I was born into this church as family, church as community experience. They were raised in institutional church made a foray into that world and then eventually came back to what they knew and not to get too weird with it but if you're familiar with joseph campbell who talks about the hero's journey which is the monomyth which is the story structure that all every blockbuster movie you've ever seen is kind of based on on a structure somewhat like that of the hero's journey the hero starts and ends in the same place like when you think about um, Bilbo in The Hobbit or Frodo in The Lord of the Rings, they, they start and end up back in the Shire, but, but they end up changed. And that's the hero's journey is you, you start in this place you call home, you enter this fantastical world and it changes you, but you eventually come home. And that's where the disconnect was because the, the thing that my heart was longing for, I, you know, I was longing to go back home to church as community, church as family, you know, church without all the trappings of institutionalism, not realizing that's what they were born in. That is home for them. So, so for them, 
it was, hey, how do we go and take all these great things we experienced in the Jesus movement and try to bring it into this institutional structure? And that's how you ended up with all these non-denominational churches and relaxed, you know, Christian worship music and, you know, a lot of stuff that we look at and go, wow, that's that's not your grandfather's church. But structurally, it is. You know, institutionally, it is. It, you know, and so, you know, a lot of, I don't want to say that the changes were superficial. I, I, I really don't want to be that dismissive because I, I do know the changes are deeper than that. Um, but it's, it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like, man, you, you, you ran this ball down the field and then you stopped like 10 yards from the goal. Uh, it's kind of the way I feel about Luther, you know? When, when, yeah. Cause, cause Luther birthed a reformation but what we needed was a revolution we didn't need to change the existing thing but leave it in place because all he really did was take the table full of sacraments and push it off to the side and replace it with a pulpit you know wow that's incredible and i I don't i don't want to be too critical yes it helped but but yeah constantine did this luther did that it's like because because we we actually like to conceptualize things that way you know, we always like to, because we like this idea of the lone maverick, the 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 genius who stands head and shoulders above everybody else, the guy who figures it out, the, you know, Neo in the Matrix. Richard, I was interested in terms of just where we left off in, in, in your story. I'd love to come back to that. And if you can just collate some of your experiences for us. You know, you talked about the idea of these precepts built upon precepts. And then Tim talked about the idea of the spider's web and getting the sense of, you know, all of this interconnectedness in terms of, of, of why it's hard to deconstruct. I'd love to hear your thoughts on if you were to collate what your experiences were that pushed you into that deconstruction, what were the elements of the web that you either started to, to really shake? What are your sort of aha moments? You've talked a little bit about reading the Bible further. I'd love to take that journey a little bit further down the track uh, and hear your thoughts on, on what are those things built upon other things getting down to the underlying assumption what how did the the house of cards start to 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 further come apart yes and I, and i want to say this just on the off chance that there's somebody who stumbles across this interview because I actually have this conversation all the time where readers will reach out to me and say i th- i thought i was the only one and that might sound crazy um, to you and me and Tim, because we've lived in this space for a while and we've had so many conversations with people who are deconstructing. But the thing is, there are still, I guarantee you, millions of believers who are having these doubts very quietly, very privately, and didn't grow up in a, or weren't in a situation where, where they're really surrounded by people to work this out with who think that they're they're on this this deconstruction alone and and wouldn't even necessarily even have the term deconstruction to to articulate it and that's where i was i started off having all these questions going to our leadership saying hey can you help me but every answer just birthed five more questions and it finally reached a critical mass where I went, oh my gosh, I don't think I can keep being a pastor 
because I'm standing up here every week as if this is the thing we're supposed to do. And I'm so riddled with doubt that we're doing any of this correctly or with God's approval that, you know, it's, it's starting to become uh, like a personal conflict just, just to even do this. And so I started with, well, I'm just going to step down as a pastor, but I'm going to keep going to church until I just sort this out. Because I, I couldn't tell, am I really on to something? Is this God speaking to me? Or am I having some sort of nervous breakdown or spiritual crisis? Am I being deceived? Am I becoming a heretic? Like, like it was a very, very, very difficult time. And, you know, so many people cried when I made the announcement that I was stepping down. Because, um, you know, People had, I, people had known me in this church for years. I was very well loved, uh, very supported. And I didn't have a satisfactory answer when people are saying, well, why are you stepping down? I didn't want to be that divisive person. Not to mention, I didn't really have any conclusions yet. I just had mostly questions. So I didn't want to say, well, I'm questioning the way we do church. So, you know, the only answers I could give were, well, I just really don't feel like I'm the right person for this job, which is such a cop-out answer. It's not an untrue answer, but that just made people even, you know, like really question, like, is there something going on that we don't know about? Because that's such a lame answer, and it was. And so, uh, you know, I just tried to kind of hang out and you know, like, well, maybe, maybe stepping down from leader, maybe becoming a leader was the problem. Maybe I should have never done that. And, uh, you know, so I, but, you know, the process continued just, and the more I started to make notes just for myself and then back up and look at what I had written, I went, oh my gosh, this is actually starting to make a lot of sense. And I really am having a hard time believing it's anything other than the Holy Spirit speaking to me which sounds arrogant because the thing that he's telling me is different than what everybody else in my church seems to believe. So I don't even want to say that out loud, but I can't deny the fact that I'm looking at, at this going, I don't think I came up with this. I think this is smarter than something I could come up with. And so I just continued the process until I reached another critical mass point. And I'll never forget the look on my wife's face when I told her one day, I'm not going back. And, you know, she ended up crying and it was a very emotional conversation. And we had watched families really, really struggle when one spouse, usually the husband, uh, would say, I'm not going to church anymore. And the wife would continue going and they would drift apart. And so you know, she was like, well, wherever you are is where I'm going to be. But, you know, it took us a while to really work through that and get on the same page. Because, you know, I'm, I'm internally processing a lot more than what I'm talking about, which is amazing, because I talk a lot. Yeah, so, you know, then um, it just became this crazy journey. But we eventually found out, um, we went to a conference that you know, in hindsight, it was okay. It was an emerging church conference. I don't know if you guys were familiar with like the whole emergent thing. And it, 
Yeah, yeah, good old Brian McLaren and company. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, met Brian and talked to him, and he's super, super nice, loving dude. Oh my gosh, he couldn't, and, and he couldn't have come at a better time, you know, because back then the conferences they were holding, you know, like his star was on the rise, so he was still very, very approachable because there wasn't a big crowd. And so, you know, I could actually spend time and talk to him and talk to, you know, some of the other guys that were kind of the the early pioneers in that. And even though it didn't quite answer the questions I was asking or meet the needs that we had, it was still just the fact that we attended a conference where everybody else was deconstructing too. That was so... Um, I mean, it was like an oasis in the desert for me and my wife, because we go to this conference, just, I mean, just feeling just beat up because at this point, you know, once I told everybody I was leaving the, the institutional church and I tried to, I tried to word it in a way where people would understand, I don't want to break like relationship. I'm, I'm not trying to leave the community. I'm not trying to leave the body of Christ. I just don't want to be part of this system. And in my brilliance, because I knew the moment I told one person they were going to misrepresent what I said, I just sent an email to everybody, you know, the smartest way. Oh, yeah. The safe, the safest way to avoid any miscommunication. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, because I was so worried that people would twist my words. But the problem is when you send an email there's, you know, there's a lot of communication that has nothing to do with what we say and it's how we say it. It's our, the, the, all the nonverbals get stripped out. And so even though the words, oh my God, yeah. And so everybody read it pretty much the opposite of how I intended it. Um, not to say that I also wasn't like super critical, like, cause I don't know that I was in a really good place. So I probably, really sounded off about some things that I was going, this is wrong and this is wrong and I don't want to be a part of this. So yeah, it was terrible. It was, it was a how not to uh, template. And the response was all these people that had known me for years and years and years. Oh man, the backlash was just heartbreaking. You know, I sometimes think that that one that one verse in scripture about think the best of everyone is actually incomplete. It's think the best of everyone, but make sure you hear them in the worst possible way. I think that's the rest of it that was just omitted when they did the translations. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and and to be fair, a lot of it was self-inflicted. You know, sending an email, not smart. I'm sure I, I haven't read that email, uh, you know, like since I sent it, but I'm sure... I'm sure if I went back and read it now, I would cringe. And I know that because the first hundred drafts of my book were all just so negative and critical and accusatory and, I mean, just terrible. Um, I think that's why it took me 15 years to write the book is because God had to get me to a place where and the the funny thing is none of the none of the observations changed um none of the truths um changed during that 15 years but the way i said it and learned to talk about it and just the way i view my brothers and sisters in the institutional church are light years apart um 
So I'm so grateful that I didn't publish the book 10 years ago um, because I would have burnt every bridge. And what's funny is all these relationships I'm talking about, they're all restored now. Like, like literally all of the, like, I'm, I am friends again with all the people that I'm, you know, cause we're referencing quite a while ago. We're referencing what, 20 years ago. So this would have been, I would have uh, become, a, I wasn't a pastor very long. I was a volunteer for, uh, you know, going on a decade. I was only a pastor for a few years. I stepped down from that in 2003 and then quit attending the institutional church altogether in maybe 2006 ish. Richard, can I ask, I've got another question for you, just as we're going through the story, and I just want to frame it a little before I ask it. So, you know, when I have conversations with people, and it's been my experience as well, there's a number of different emotions that are tied into this idea of deconstruction, and you've alluded to some of that, and I'd love to have your thoughts on it. But this idea of the internal conversation, and you talked about thinking you might be the only one. and I think one of the things that we're hoping to offer to listeners is that it breaks open that's that vacuum of just being the only one, but also that there's some there can be some resonance in terms of the emotions and the, that part of the process that they have to face. And so I was wondering, did you have to face significant things in terms of kind of the fear of deconstruction? Now, there's the question of, am I losing my faith? You've talked about, you know, relationship with your spouse, which is obviously very close to home. Um, There's your own internal, you know, uh, monologue in terms of, am I moving towards heresy? What does this mean? And then you last mentioned the idea of backlash, you know, from other people potentially. Were there things that you had to to sort of break through the thresholds of some of those things, fear or um, concern, worry, anxiety, anything Um, like that you'd be willing to share with us? Yes, yes, yes. Because I I, I remember telling my wife, there are times that I really feel like all of this is God talking to me, but doesn't every cult leader think that? So I, I, I mean, I told her, like, I don't know if this is God leading me into like this whole new thing that's going to be so incredibly worth it, you know, the road less traveled here, or if I am deluding myself and leaving the, the straight and narrow path. And the only, I, I finally had to get to a place where I got my eyes off myself because the whole question was, am I doing this right? Am I doing this wrong? Is this God? Is this me? You know, and I I finally realized, oh my gosh, how self-centered is your view of how all of this works as if it all depends on you. If God knows my heart, which you know, I'm not saying I'm consistent, you know, I'm sure there, there are days I don't feel like this, but overall, I would say the theme in my life is that I have wanted to follow him. And that is, sincere. and there's days that I miss it. And there's days I put myself before him, totally admit that. But at the end of the day, what it really comes down to is, yes, I do want to follow the Lord. And he knows that better than anybody 
because he can actually see my heart. If he has that information and sees how confused I am and the fact that I am powerless to figure this out on my own, and he just leaves me in the ocean to drown, what kind of God is that? It's not the one I've been preaching, and it's not the one I've known since I was a child, and it's not what we see in Scripture. I mean, you know, Jesus tells Peter, hey, you know, come to me, and Peter walks on the water, and the moment he starts to drown, he reaches down, he picks him up. Now, he does say to him, hey, why did you doubt? (laughs) You know, like, like, man, you had it. You had it for just a minute, and that's probably as good as I'm ever going to get. Oh man, Richard, you had it. You had it for a minute, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but at the end of the day, you know, he's the one who's got to reach and pull me out of, of the waves or I'm going to drown. And and once I realized this is dependent on him and, and the way I started praying about this just changed where it wasn't like, Oh Lord, tell me this, show me that, help me Help me figure this out. It was like, you know what? Screw all that. That's just such nonsense because that is a walk of sight, not a walk of faith where I'm saying, Lord, you have to, you have to make this make sense to me. So I know where to put, you know, the next, the next step. It's like, no, you follow the spirit. And it's like, well, Lord, if you don't stop me, here's my next step. (laughs) Cause this is, this is the only thing that I know to do, even if it doesn't make sense on paper. This is where I'm feeling led, and so this is where I'm headed. You know, you have veto power. You stopped Paul when he started to head the wrong direction. Like, you stopped him. Like, why can he not do that with me? And so I, I just, if anything really changed, it was my relationship with the Lord. And honestly, I would submit that's just one tiny example of why you should even do this because this whole thing, the whole thing is about entering into a deeper place with the Lord. He's not calling you out of, if he's calling you, I'll preface it that way. If he's calling you out of the institutional church, if it's not just something that you got an idea to do, but he's actually making this happen. He's calling you out. He's not calling you out just to cause a bunch of trouble. I'm not saying it won't be trouble. But, you know, it's like for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You think about the trouble (laughs) that Jesus was facing when it comes to his crucifixion, but what was on the other side was so worth it to him. He was like, yeah, yeah, that's worth it. Same with you. If the Lord is calling you in this direction, you may lose friends, you may lose family, you may be, you know, just... Uh, an unmentionable in your community, like it could cost you a job. It did me. I was a pastor. My employment was the institutional church. So not only did I lose my community, I had to, I I took a pay cut to become a pastor and then had to take a pay cut to leave. (laughs) No, we're not talking forward mobility here. Like, like we, we sacrificed on every level. And you may have to do that too, but it's because what's on the other side is so much better. And I would point to the main thing being a deeper relationship with the Lord. Like, like what is that worth? Put a dollar amount on that, you know, to, to be able to hear him more clearly and walk closer with him. I mean, that's worth it right there. <laughs>